to start by saying that this paper is kind of my first sort of tentative attempt to sort of engage legal anthropology, I guess. Uh, and when I was researching the paper, I was really struck by the fact that there's actually very little work on legal anthropology um, in lowland South America. And uh, so that, that became interesting itself. And so that's something that I sort of hope to try and, uh, you know, engage with and, and perhaps explain in the paper itself. By the time I met them in early 2005, Lucho and Alfredo were already bitter enemies. They were also brothers, born to the same parents, and had been living in, a, in the same community for some years on the banks of the Apachambura River in a remote corner of the Peruvian Amazon. But no more. When I arrived for fieldwork, I found them engrossed in an all-consuming and complex feud that seemed originally to concern women, but had steadily engulfed everyone around them in a tit-for-tat struggle of endless acts of revenge, each provoking ever greater outrage. Even when Alfredo took his extended family and founded a new rival community a few bends downriver, the hostilities continued to escalate. Yet the two men pursued increasingly divergent but strangely complementary strategies. Alfredo, for his part, chose the more traditional path of assault sorcery, travelling far away to the Kokama communities of the Marañón River to employ the sinister services of a legendary powerful shaman who'd presumably, in the deep of night, launch a flurry of tiny invisible darts, which, when lodged into the body of his enemy, would cause sickness or worse. Meanwhile, Lucho prepared and launched a steady barrage of legal documents. He began by attempting to draw up a formal deed of commitment with the most prominent of the fluvial traders to visit in the area, which would effectively prohibit him from supporting Alfredo's family and allies with his merchandise on credit. He then launched a series of formal complaints, or denuncias, addressed primarily to the newly instated Justice of the Peace in the region, as well as the mayor's office in the nearby town of Maipuco. A key aim of these documents was to persuade them to send a policeman who'd take Alfredo away and ideally put him in prison. All the while, Lucha made every effort to acquire a national identity card, which he thought would greatly enhance his chances of success by compelling higher authorities to take notice of him. These divergent strategies for dealing with conflict are not mutually exclusive. Lucho, for example, might well have complemented his legal warfare with the shamanic arts had he been able, while Alfredo was not averse to seeking redress through the courts. In many ways, their very complementarity and proximity raises some interesting questions about how formal law penetrates non-state societies, as well as law's relationship to magic and ritual, a topic of long-standing and, I hope, enduring interest. In one of the founding texts of social anthropology, Sir Henry Maine contended that law and religion were originally inseparable and only became differentiated with the gradual advance of society. A few decades later, Durkheim made a similar claim, arguing that the authority of law, its special nature as something to be respected, is part of the essence of moral phenomena. The role of law is to express and affirm shared beliefs and understandings, and these are essentially religious. It's not only that law expresses religious ideas in the form of taboos and the like, but that law and religion have certain similarities as social phenomena. They impose obligations on those who accept their authority. In Durkheim's own words, law is meaningless if it is detached from religion, which has given it its main distinguishing marks and of which it is partially only a derivation. Or, as he put it in the elementary forms of the religious life, Today we are beginning to realise that law, morals and even scientific thought itself were born of religion, 
were for a long time confounded with it and have remained penetrated with its spirit. Religion today no longer provides the same all-embracing structure of beliefs as it once did, but modern society still requires a moral foundation which it is the function of law to express, protect and guarantee. A number of anthropologists since Durkheim have pursued a similar line of inquiry, though generally leaving aside the somewhat unwieldy concept of religion in order to focus on law's relationship to magic and ritual. Hence, scholars have drawn attention, for example, to the magic at the heart of early Roman law, noting, for example, the ritualistic use of precise legal formulae or the magical effects of personal seals. Others have drawn attention to the ritual elements that still underpin modern legal systems in the West, Perhaps the most notable example of the Durkheimian legacy is the theory of witchcraft as a form of social control, originally associated with British structural functionalism. In the absence of formal or codified law, so the reasoning goes, other social institutions, such as witchcraft, are thought to serve a similar function, regulating behaviour according to accepted social norms. One problem with this approach, as Marilyn Strathern has pointed out, is that there's no reason to assume a priori why conflicts or disputes should ultimately concern the imposition of order. The very idea that law is a mechanism that meets basic human needs for regulation is in fact itself part of the ideology of law and emerges from a model of social life that belongs to the industrial West as well as to state systems of government. The Durkheimian paradigm, in other words, exemplifies the logic of what Deleuze and Guattari have called state science. Society as a coherent, cohesive, unified and unifying entity is modelled on and exists for the state. Its counterpart are, of course, the atomised individuals similarly fashioned in the image of the state which they've effectively internalised, like minuscule individual sub-states subsumed by the state as the super-individual. The alternative to this state science, say Deleuze and Guattari, is so-called nomad thought, an alternative minor science of continuous variations which resists the temptation to universalize and which celebrates multiplicity. Nomad thought is associated with the idea of the primitive war machine which, which agonistically opposes the state, historically resisting its attempts to incorporate and subordinate it. Instead of Durkheimian society, then, we have the rhizome, an asubjective multiplicity whose components are not individual subjects but singularities. Behind the abstract language here is a well-known argument by Pierre Clastre, from whom Deleuze and Guattari take inspiration, to the effect that Amazonian warfare, combined with a consistent undermining of the power of chiefs, was precisely a means of warding off the state, of preventing any submission to the various forms of sovereign power that have existed in the region since pre-Columbian times. Two questions then. Firstly, how as anthropologists to avoid imposing state thought where it doesn't belong? And secondly, ethnographically speaking, how does the logic of the state take over? That is, how do societies against the state, as it were, become societies for the state, or perhaps simply society against the individual? Instead of a simple opposition between two succeeding social formations, pre-state and state, we arrive with Deleuze and Guattari at the possibility of thinking about the state and its logic in terms of two opposing principles moving in opposite directions. On the one hand, the centralization, crystallization and polarization of power that underlies state formation. 
On the other hand, the centrifugal processes of fragmentation that continually counteract this. To anticipate my conclusion, this is indeed how I will propose to think about the relationship between law and shamanism. In this way, I hope to rescue some of what I feel is especially valuable in Durkheim's writings on law, especially as, it's, as concerns its relationship to morality and the sacred, while moving beyond what I think is one of its biggest weaknesses, namely the near-total absence of politics. In emphasizing the idea of law as something to be believed in and willingly obeyed, Durkheim massively down, downplays its role as an instrument of domination, the necessary connection between law and specific projects of governance. Against legal pluralism, then, which is, idea, which is arguably uh, indeed a prime example of state science, finding law everywhere, I take law to be the concomitant of centralizing processes, processes that at a certain point resulted in the formation of the nation state. I suggest that examining how these processes take root might even help to shed light on one of the key problems in political theory over the past century, namely how the founding of law in violence lies at the heart of the constitution of sovereign power. My argument in brief will be as follows. Prior to sedentarization in the 1980s, the Amazonian Urarina had no concept of law or custom as something external to individuals and regulating them from above or experienced as coercive. With increased exposure to the Peruvian state, they began to try to use law in an aggressive, individualistic and instrumental way that closely resembles and is perhaps largely modelled on shamanic ritual. <clears throat> Yet while Urarina readily, and rightly I think, perceives some of the similarities between these two domains of action, there are some important differences that they are perhaps unaware of as concerns their respective political implications. Shamanism, despite a reliance on deference to higher authorities, promotes social and political fragmentation. Law, on the other hand, despite attempts to use it in similar ways, necessarily concentrates authority and the legitimate use of violence in the hands of a select few and works towards political centralization and a coercive form of sociality. And in so doing, law fashions a belief in its own necessity, establishing, as it were, the logic of state thought. So in other words, I'm interested in how Urarina are actively drawing on the law, this new idea of formal law, um, in accordance with their own goals and understandings of it, um, but at the, then at the same time how the law in the process, by virtue of its inner logic, transforms uh, the Urarina in the process. Okay, so in this first section, Law and Morality in Amazonia, I want to argue that in traditional Urarina social life, um, by which I mean really just prior to the 1980s, there was nothing really resembling law as we know it, and indeed there couldn't be because of their particular ideas of moral personhood and responsibility. In present-day Amazonia, a number of indigenous peoples have, read, have relatively recently begun to grapple with the idea of the law and its ever more prominent role in their lives. For the Urarina of Amazonian Peru, a group of around 4,000 hunter horticulturalists with whom I conducted fieldwork, <coughs> legal process has become an ever-increasing focus of concern since the early 1980s when they first began to settle in larger nucleated communities in accordance with the 1974 so-called law of, of native communities, a kind of one-size-fits-all model for Peru's entire indigenous population. Previously semi-nomadic with little direct relationship to the state, they embarked on this project of sedentarization in order to receive land title and other government incentives under a nationwide initiative. 
This has meant suddenly living in close proximity with ever larger numbers of people, including distant or even non-kin. Prior to this, the Urarina lived a highly dispersed, mobile lifestyle in small, autonomous kin-based groups, in which mechanisms of conflict resolution were almost entirely absent. A strong emphasis on social harmony prevailed. Disputes of any kind would typically result in the relocation of one or more parties, a strategy facilitated by low population density. In other words, any dissension in a settlement immediately led to some insiders turning into new outsiders, as Peter Riviere put it, or as, jo as Joanna Overing has written, there was no need for an authority system to impose itself formally upon the members of the community. There was no civil law, as we would ordinarily label it, no supra-familial means of judging, controlling or punishing ordinary misdemeanours. There was nothing resembling a court or council of elders. Instead, custom and law were seen to reside within the person and not without. This form of morality is deeply rooted in ideas about subjectivity and humanity's place in the cosmos. For a start, to act immorally is almost by definition to act as a less than fully human being. The Urarina self-designation, kacha, means literally real person or true human being, and such a person ideally exhibits, among other virtues, respect for others, knowledge, and generosity, while avoiding anger or violence directed at kin. The capacity to display such virtues is attributed primarily to the body, which must be maintained as fully human at all times, in part by consuming the food and drink proper to humans. Not only then do Urarina refuse to eat certain foods that they consider foreign, such as beef, they consider the consumption of such foods by mestizos and whites to be part and parcel of their immoral behaviour. Similarly, moral failings are often located in bodily abnormalities. My neighbour Rosalia, for example, was a strong-willed woman who'd often get in heated, heated arguments, especially while drunk. One man explained this to me, saying, her body is very strong, very fierce, that's why she's like that. The ongoing fabrication of the properly human body is central to social life, including the processes of feeding and nurturing that underpin kinship. For this reason, those who are kin who share one's blood are more human, more kacha, than others, and also those from whom one can expect the most moral behaviour. Non-humans, by contrast, a category including sentient animals as well as neighbouring indigenous groups, are considered to have social lives analogous to humans but flawed in some way that exemplifies undesirable moral qualities, manifesting above all in indiscriminate behaviour towards kin, such as incest or predatory violence. Moral shortcomings among humans are attributed to the body rather than to the mind, and more specifically to the potential of the body to revert to a less than fully human form, to take on quite literally some degree of animality. While lamenting the way certain inhabitants of our village were constantly fighting amongst themselves, one man explains to me, well, their lives are different, they're not yet fully civilised. The term he used, ichao, meaning life or way of life, is often used to refer to animals who just see the world fundamentally differently to humans. There's little use here in trying to enforce a universal standard, for animals will be animals and will always pursue their interests as constituted by their bodies. One who behaves in a truly abominable manner, who commits incest, for example, might be labelled taibunyai, or savage animal, a category whose prototype is the jaguar. And the point, I think, is that such people perceive their kin much as a jaguar perceives its kin, namely without due respect, a shortcoming that's intrinsic to its jaguar body. Such bodily transformation based on moral deviance has a mythical precedent, 
accounts of how particular species were transformed from their original proto-human condition in mythical times often locate moral failings at the heart of the transformation itself. The story of Woodpecker, for example, tells of a woman who possessed many ceramic pots but was too stingy to loan them out to her neighbours. When asked for a pot, she'd tap on a broken one, tap, 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 and proclaim them all to be similarly broken and useless to avoid having to loan them. And this is, of course, the sound we still hear today following her transformation into the bodily form of the woodpecker. Yet then as now, there's no universal principle external to one's body for directing or judging behaviour, simply a sense that we have the bodies we deserve. A further, no less important reason why disputes of this kind are almost impossible to mediate is a pervasive unwillingness to consider to claim to know other minds. Straightforward questions about someone else's motives for performing a given action are met with a steadfast refusal to speculate and a claim that it's impossible to know the mind of another. So you ask someone something really obvious, like, oh, well, why did um, Alejandro just get up in a, in a rage just then? They'll say, oh, I have no idea. You'll have to ask Alejandro. But they obviously know, but there's this refusal to read the intentions of others. Uh, I should emphasise that this is not to say that people do not, in fact, read, people's other, read other people's minds, and I suspect they do so all the time, but it's nevertheless downplayed and culturally discouraged. As has been suggested in a Melanesian context, statements about the opacity of other minds are also, uh, uh, sorry, are not merely about the relationship between knowledge and meaning, or public evidence and private states. They're also about authority. They're inherently moral and political, part of a pervasive em emphasis on individualism and egalitarianism. For to claim to know another person's mind is to impinge on their self-determination. This opacity of other minds also underpins the local philosophy of language, which doesn't consider an utterer's mental state to be necessarily relevant to the interpretation of their speech. Words do things rather than express or mediate viewpoints. They're not made to represent objective truth because all truth is relative to the relationships and experiences of those who claim to know. This perspectival philosophy in many ways goes against our own ideas of law and justice. When talking to people involved in disputes, I was often struck by what seemed to be their very stubborn insistence on being absolutely in the right, even when I tried gently to draw attention to their own possible faults or failings. Accounts of events were similarly blatantly one-sided and people refused to contemplate how an event might have been perceived by another party. And that actually made it very frustrating to get the history of any kind of dispute because you, know, you, you ask someone, oh, how, you know, why have you been you know, disputing with this person for so long? That the account they'll give you is so one-sided it's actually very difficult to reconstruct what, what might have been going on. Differences in this regard seemed irreconcilable, which partly accounts for the traditional lack of interest in mediating disputes. Once a conflict had escalated beyond a certain level, there was no real expectation that it could ever be resolved through a process of mediation. Amazonians place a premium on social harmony, but once this is broken, tempers flare and are difficult to cool. The transition from friend to enemy is fast and hard to reverse, all contributing to the general dynamic of fragmentation that characterises traditional sociality. Okay, this next section is called Dark Art of the Denuncia. So I return now to the conflict with which I began between the two brothers, Lucho and Alfredo, whose inability to see eye to eye had split their community apart. Needless to say, remaining neutral in such a conflict is impossible, 
and as I was allied to Lucio from the beginning, I can only speculate as to Alfredo's precise course of action, but I do know that vengeance through sorcery or shamanic ritual centers on the, on the ritual chanting that accompanies the consumption of psychotropics. These chants have a kind of prophetic quality and are often said to actually bring about the events that they describe. Psychotropics are often drunk to defend the living, as people call it, or to heal illness, which is um, thought to be the result of malevolent sorcery. In such cases, the shaman attempts to extract the tiny magical darts from the patient and then direct them back at the sender across considerable distances if necessary in what can easily escalate into a kind of full-fledged mystical warfare. Yet as often as not, it seemed that the hostile action was not a direct attack, but instead uh, involved persuading some other agent, a potential ally, such as a snake or a malevolent spirit, to intervene and to cause misfortune uh, to one's enemy on one's behalf. So, for example, one man admitted to me that he had indeed once offered gifts to a, a, a powerful shaman to make his cheating wife disappear, um, and uh, agreeing that the shaman would... Um, communicate directly with the spirit mother of water who was supposed to grab her one day while she was bathing and just take her away altogether. The words sung in a shamanic chant are always highly formulaic, comprising juxtapositions of standardised figures and expressions that have been passed down from the ancestors, but at the same time are always said to originate not from the shaman himself who's enunciating the words, but from the, the spirit mother of the species of hallucinogenic plant that he's, cons uh, that he's just consumed, the mother of ayahuasca or of Brugmansia. And this, this spirit being used as the shaman as a kind of mouthpiece and speaks through him, as emphasised by the fact that the chant frequently addresses the enunciator in second person as, as you. The chant's key qualities of formality, repetition and quotation are of course central to most if not all forms of ritual action, a defining feature of which is that it does not originate in the intentionality of the producer. As Humphrey and Laidlaw have made clear in their book on ritual, uh, the degree of ritualisation of action corresponds to the degree to which actions are felt to be stipulated in advance and thereby separated out from people's intentions in action, in acting. Ritual is therefore linked to deference, as Morris Block points out, or, in his words, reliance on the authority of others to guarantee the value of what's said or done. Yet in the case of shamanism, at least, there's still considerable scope for individual variation between shamans who can acquire considerable power independently of each other and indeed use that power in perennial struggles that promote social and political fragmentation. As for Lucho's struggle, in which I personally sometimes participated uh, reluctantly as a scribe uh, because he couldn't write, it centred on the so-called denuncia, or denunciation, one of the most striking features of which is its formality. Ururina are acutely aware of the way these documents should look and sound, and there's a general consensus that the more formal they are, the better. The following example was sent by Lucho to the local Justice of the Peace, written as they always are in Spanish, with the assistance of the school teacher this time, because Lucho is illiterate, and it reads, Native Community Nueva Pucuna, 16th February 2006, from Mr. Luis Ojecate Ignacio, Lieutenant Governor Nueva Pucuna, Sir Antonio Ojecate Vela, Justice of the Peace, matter, request for solution to a problem. 
I, Luis Ojaicate Ignacio, Lieutenant Governor of Nueva Pucuna, hereby affirm that Mr. Alfredo Ojaicate Ignacio has been illegally removing fish from the lagoon belonging to our community without permission of the authorities. The bearer of this document, Mr. Antonio Inumabella, is a witness to the affair. I desirously beg your support in the hope that justice may be done. Sincerely, Luis Ojaicate Ignacio. The formality of these documents contrasts dramatically with the highly colloquial nature of spoken Spanish, and I had a strong sense that their very formality in large part accounted for their persuasive power, their ostensible persuasive power at least. This formality may be understood in part in terms of the highly structured and predictable nature of the discourse and the use of a restricted and rigidly organized set of expressions. Formal language shifts emphasis from the personal identity of the speaker to his or her role, invoking positional and public identities along with a sense of social distance and respect for an established political and social order. This is a way of increasing legitimacy, the point of sending a document with a much sought after personal stamp or seal that everyone wants to get their hands on, is similarly to emphasize that the author isn't writing in his capacity as an individual, but as the bearer of some kind of official role invested with special authority. All this is relatively unusual in an Amazonian context, precisely because of the lack of any kind of formal roles or offices in traditional sociality. Deference is also an important feature of legal action. Lucho is placing his hopes that his ends will be achieved in the hands of others he trusts, deferring firstly to the established manner of composing a formal document, and secondly to the justice of the peace himself as a higher authority. In fact, the two strategies, legal and magical, are both violent in intent, though they also rely on supplication rather than any direct coercion. They're both ultimately techniques of persuasion directed at powerful allies. Lucho certainly didn't view the justice of the peace as an impartial observer capable of adjudicating the case on its merits, but rather as an entity to be cultivated and co-opted as, as an ally in his war on his brother Alfredo. His greatest concern then was certainly not how to present the facts of the case in an optimum light, so much as to obtain his identity documents and gather together gifts from his supporters um, in the community to help with the persuasion. His pragmatism in these matters is perhaps unsurprising, but we should note here the impossibility of an impartial or objective... Sorry, we should note that the impossibility of an impartial or objective viewpoint is also a logical consequence of his underlying philosophy of language and action, which, as I noted earlier, is predicated on the impossibility of mediating between or reconciling divergent perspectives. There's nevertheless a crucial difference between the two strategies, insofar as the violent effect aimed for in shamanic ritual is potentially available to anyone with enough dedication to learn the dark arts. It's very, shamanism is very democratic, in other words. Anyone who wants to become a shaman can just go and, so they drink enough ayahuasca, uh, they become very powerful. Uh, so there's no centralization or, or coordination, hence the classic situation of a number of powerful shamans covertly at war with each other. Legal action, on the other hand, depends on a degree of coordination between the centers of power, the justice of the peace, the mayor in Maipuco, and other organs of government. As Deleuze and Guattari would put it, the central state organizes a resonance between these power centers, they're polarized at a common point, like concentric circles. For their part, though I'm not sure that Ururinas see the law as especially magical per se, they do tend to focus on its similarities to shamanism rather than its differences. When I once asked how a typical shamanic curing chant worked, 
I was told that illness is a form of soul loss and that the words of the chant were like a policeman who must go to fetch the soul of a sick patient from the prison in which it's being held captive and return it to the body. One of the striking features of this analogy is that the shaman, much like the policeman, can use his power for either good or bad. This results in a fundamental ambivalence towards both magic and the law, arising from the duality of their use in both attack and defence. These two aspects of both shamanism and the law, I should say, are not seen as separate. So the power to cure harm and to cause it, like the power to imprison and to set free, are always inextricably linked. In many ways, Urarina do not need to draw an association with shamanism to perceive the possibilities of law as a weapon, for their own history offers ample illustrations. Many of their more negative experiences of law involve the spectre of the policeman who's always envisaged as, a brutal and, as, as particularly brutal and as lacking respect and who in oral histories arrives in Urarina territory to carry away and imprison Urarina who've been made the targets of formal complaints or denuncias by mestizos. The notorious prison in Moyobamba, a faraway city in the San Martin region, looms large in these accounts as everyone's worst nightmare and the defining quality of the power, to po the power of the policeman to make people disappear. Yet the defensive possibilities of law are also gradually becoming apparent. In some stories of more recent origin, the law is on the Urarina's side in their struggles with outsiders, even helping them to gain revenge. One of my closest friends and informants, a young man named Elias, had a remarkable first-hand encounter with the brute power of the law after he had accompanied me to the city of Iquitos to help me with some translations. He'd carried out some back-breaking work carrying logs over several days for a stranger that he met one day on the outskirts of the city, who subsequently refused to pay him the agreed amount. After pestering this man, Elias had to go to this man's house every day and pester him to pay him for all the work that he carried out. So after pestering this man in his house every few days or so, but to no avail, we decided together that he should pay a visit to a state-funded legal organisation known as the Defensoria del Pueblo, or Defenders of the People, an organisation that's established to uphold the rights of rural and especially indigenous peoples. Elias arrived on his own early in the morning and told his sorry story. The men in the office listened sympathetically and then drew out a map of the province and, the, and a schedule of Peru's ethnic groups to confirm that there was, in fact, a group of people known as the Urarina and a place called the Chambira River. Upon finding that there was, they leapt into action. <clears throat> Presumably there was not much else happening that day because Elias suddenly found himself in the company of a team of lawyers, a policeman and a justice of the peace, all headed for the house of his erstwhile boss at the outskirts of the city. They found him still lying in bed in the decrepit room he was renting with his mother, and we can only imagine the look on his face as Elias's legal posse stormed into his bedroom, threatening him with imprisonment if he failed to pay immediately. When it became, the, when it became apparent that the man was broke, destitute even, they invited Elias to beat him senseless instead by way of compensation. But Elias took pity on the man and declined, to the apparent disappointment of the lawyers. They invited him back to their office for a beer instead, where Elias explained that he'd come to Iquitos to work for a gringo who was translating the Urarina language. Immediately suspicious, they showered him with questions and wondered if they should also pay me a visit. But Elias quickly reassured them about my motives, explaining that I too, just like them, was his lawyer. 
Later, when he was telling me the story, he emphasized, we arena have heaps of support. We have heaps of rights. Okay, the next section is called The Rise of Punishment. The use of law as a technique of punishment by the group, rather than as an instrument of individual vengeance, increasingly takes place within the native community itself. The process of sedentarization that began in the 1980s has meant the construction of larger and more permanent houses that contributes greatly to people's desire to resolve disputes rather than to simply relocate and start over. Mediation by an authority such as the Justice of the Peace is not easy, but it is possible, even though the mental states of perpetrators are generally disregarded in general accordance with the doctrine of the opacity of other minds. For example, in uh, June 2006, one of my closest companions in the field, a young boy named Toribio, was collecting papaya with another boy of a similar age. And the other boy accidentally struck his hand with a machete and sliced off part of his thumb, like that, uh, leading to such an excessive loss of blood that he died shortly thereafter. Enraged, Toribio's father immediately departed for the downstream community of San Miguel in the hope that the newly instated justice of the peace would back his demand for hefty compensation from the other boy's father, who was his own half-brother. The latter followed behind, hot on his heels throughout the three-day journey. In the negotiations that ensued, no mention of was made of the fact that the event was an accident. The entire focus was on the outcome of death and the degree of compensation that should follow as a result. This was not unusual. Generally speaking, perpetrators of crimes and misdemeanors are today found responsible and punished in accordance with the degree of damage they've caused rather than the degree to which their crime was committed intentionally. The defense of, oh, I didn't mean it, is considered irrelevant and it's seldom attempted. There's no equivalent then of the concept of mens rea, the vicious will or guilty mind that's viewed as one of the necessary elements of a crime in Western law. In legal terms, we might say that people are liable, but not culpable. And this liability is distributed in the sense that husbands and fathers, in particular, are often held primarily accountable for damages caused by their wives or children. Interestingly, not only the mental states of perpetrators are disregarded. Take cases of rape, for example, or rather the lack of them. Although I heard very frequent complaints of violación, or rape, these cases always involved minors and very often an element of incest. <clears throat> what was generally at issue, it seemed, was not the lack of consent on the part of the girl herself, but her, <clears throat> but her age or her status as kin. Rape as such, as we would understand it, seemed not to promote, provoke much controversy, not only because of patriarchy, I think, but because con concrete events take precedence over issues of intention in determinations of responsibility. Where a dispute or crime is relatively minor, people increasingly try to seek resolution without recourse to an external authority such as the justice of the peace. <clears throat> Thus, one of the key features of the modern native community is the calabozo, or holding cell. In all Urarina communities, one now finds, next to the school and the football field, a small wooden structure, about a metre in diameter, slightly too low to stand upright in, with a door that can be locked on the outside with, a, with the aid of a few nails. 
temporary imprisonment in the holding cell, uh, usually for a period of between 6 and 24 hours, has become a ubiquitous and much feared form of punishment for a variety of misdemeanours ranging from theft or adultery to failure to participate in a collective work effort. In fact, the range of possible offences seems limitless. One girl of 14 was imprisoned in the holding cell for six hours for shouting insults at her mother-in-law, while I myself was once threatened with imprisonment for failing to share my belongings as widely as at least some people thought that I should. Very luckily for me, they didn't, because it's really, really small, this box, and I imagine it would be torture to be stuck inside. I mean, the public humiliation is one thing, but the physical discomfort is another. Incarceration is the prerogative of the Lieutenant Governor, or the Teniente Gobernador, the elected representative of the state within each community who alone wields coercive power. In accordance with the official state model of the native community, the Lieutenant Governor is legally authorised to adjudicate disputes and, and to punish misdemeanours on the community's behalf. This office was once held by the owners of large estates, or haciendas, who used and abused their authority to enforce compliance among the native population who made up their labour force. Today, however, the decision to punish is usually made by the group as a whole, through a process of consensus at a communal meeting. As such, punishment is effectively exerted by the community itself, acting as a single entity. This approach is what Durkheim called repressive sanctions, a collective condemnation of the offender on behalf of society as a whole, a public vindication of collective values. In other words, the origins of this kind of punishment are to be found in a particular kind of collective life in which the social comes, for the first time, to exert a coercive force over its individual members. The logic of the state, in other words, and the role of law is undeniable. In other words, you know, for those who know Durkheim's argument, you know, he sees repressive sanctions as, as kind of primordial you know, in tribal societies, but I, I'm arguing that they're not, that they're in fact itself a product of kind of state-like form of sociality where you have sort of this coercive element. One of the effects of this new regime is that crimes or misdemeanours are increasingly spoken of as being against the law or as alternatively right or wrong in some absolute sense that is, antisocial, rather than simply against the interests of one or more individuals. Law, morality and custom come to be seen as external to people and as regulating their behaviour. Antisocial behaviour results in an individual being seen as deviant, in the wrong, because they could have acted otherwise, but not less than human. At the same time, the law itself comes to take on something of a sacred quality. For example... Just a month or so after moving his extended family downstream and starting his own rival community, Alfredo had already constructed a, a modest football field. But he knew that his tiny breakaway community would never achieve legitimacy until it boasted a school. One day then, while all the original community members were away upriver um, cutting down timber, uh, he paddled upriver with his sons-in-law, dismantled the original school ferried it downstream piece by piece in canoe and reassembled it in the middle of his own renegade community, just a few bends downriver. Out, the outrage that this caused among my friends goes without saying. You can't just dismantle a school, my friend Lucho exclaimed, livid. That school has heaps of law. 
The force of the law as a vital immanent energy seems to be associated here with the unifying qualities of the school as the symbolic heart of the native community, which is itself a microcosm of the state in whose image it is constructed. The idea of law as an abstract unifying principle that crystallises shared values and produces a sense of devotion is further associated with the rise of moralising discourses managed by school teachers and other young leaders telling people how they should live as good, modern, civilised Peruvians. Increasingly, the new style of life in organised, orderly native communities is counterposed to the ostensibly chaotic and violent ways of the ancestors. The rule of law is now commonly evoked as a peaceful contrast to even the not-too-distant past, which is depicted as a time in which violence was entrenched in the manner of men. One man explained this to me in the following terms. Earlier, 50 years ago, the life of men was like this. With sticks, they beat each other. They fought. They stuck their weapons right into the body without any care. Overhearing, another, another man added, Yes, yes, that's how my father was. My father was a bad person, tall and fat. We, my brothers and I, have not followed him. We have more knowledge. The first continued, The ancients were fierce. Like killing an animal, they attacked other men. They had no pity. They really liked to fight. My uncle, he fought with absolutely everyone, while stone-cold sober. The people were all afraid of each other. Those bad old-timers, they've all died now. That kind of fighting no longer exists now. Now life has changed and there is respect. While there may well be some truth in claims such as these, um, my suspicion is that these kinds of representations of the past as a time of chaos are partly the products of the new regime of punishment and order in which social control in the form of law is increasingly seen as necessary and inevitable. So, in other words, I'm, I'm sort of channeling Foucault here a bit, I guess, in that it's the imposition of this new regime of punishment, um, you know, sort of disciplinary regime, that's producing this sense of sort of wild, asocial urges in need of control, in need of, you know, uh, in need of ordering. In other words, much like centuries of colonial attempts to tame wild Indians, um, much like these attempts to tame wild Indians led to a proliferation throughout the region of an image of wildness and savagery, and this is something you see in you know, the work of Michael Tausig, for example, um, the imposition of law and order produces its opposite, a terrifying sense of disorder or chaos. Okay, so there's, there's all these discourses of chaos and violence in the ways of the ancestors, and uh, my argument that the ancestors weren't really nearly so violent and chaotic as everyone makes out. They know this, this discourse of chaos and violence is itself an ideological effect of law. Okay. Legal techniques such as the denuncia, or so this, this is the last section and it's called Justice and the End of Struggle. Yeah. Legal techniques such as the denuncia, or formal complaint, along with the concept of the law in which these are embedded, have been enthusiastically embraced by Urarina in recent years, despite a lingering sense of ambivalence and uncertainty. Such positive or formal law does not, however, exist in any meaningful relationship with customary law or traditional techniques of dispute resolutions, for these are virtually non-existent 
And in any case, contrary, I think, to the premises of Amazonian political ontology, to understand how and why the law has managed to gain so much traction in recent years, to the point of really becoming a fetish of sorts, I've looked to concrete historical experiences of justice and injustice, but also to the sphere of action which most closely resembles legal technique, namely shamanic ritual. For law is itself a ritual of the state, and the documents and procedures that comprise people's primary experience of law find common ground with the displaced intentionality, an attitude of deference and supplication, that lies at the heart of shamanic authority. For Durkheim, who made a powerful case for the religious basis of law, religious belief is always belief in abstract forces which give people a sense of the sacredness of something outside themselves, a life lived in common with others, including past and present generations. Yet if law is indeed an object of, an, of attachment, as Durkheim thought, and a unifying regulatory force, the same cannot be said for Amazonian shamanism, which is a solitary pursuit and ultimately serves the interests of individuals and small groups. Like warfare, it's inherently fragmenting in its effects, promoting dispersal, grounded in violence, and preventing the concentration or consolidation of power or influence. The aspect of law that most fascinates the arena is its potential as a weapon or as a set of procedures for the effective persuasion of higher forces or authorities for individual, often violent, ends. Law, like shamanism, is intrinsically linked to predatory violence, whether as a capacity for inflicting harm or defending oneself against enemies. Yet it's also closely linked with an emerging concept of society or the social, a product of state thought that results in a real ambivalence surrounding its moral value. Yet law works its magic regardless of people's wishes or intentions. When Lucho once labelled his enemy Alfredo as alternately a savage animal, Taibinyai, and a criminal, he probably saw these terms as equivalent, but I don't think that they are. In the former case, the savage animal, morality and custom are imminent in the person and define the human perspective as such. In the latter case, the criminal, they're imposed on individuals from without, demanding commitment and obedience. Enthusiasm for the denuncia is part of Urarina's attempt to decentralise the law, to wield it instrumentally, and to take redress themselves, as they might wield the tiny darts of assault sorcery. But such attempts are ultimately futile, for law always works to create a monopoly on force. It attaches conditions to the use of force that authorise its employment only by certain individuals under certain circumstances. In this way, law unifies the community on behalf of which it's implemented. The individual who's authorised to apply coercive measures, in our case the Lieutenant Governor of the Native Community or the Justice of the Peace, acts as an organ of the community constituted by this legal order. In short, law makes the use of force a monopoly of the community, which in the process it pacifies. Each native community becomes a microcosm of the state, a centralised political organisation and a coercive order punishing in its name. At the same time as they seek to deploy law violently and as individuals, People praise the law for keeping violence at bay, for enabling them to move beyond the chaotic and violent ways of the ancestors and to become organised. Here, above all, at the heart of this paradox, is where the ideological effects of law are working their magic. 
Some form of social control, external to individuals, comes to be seen as necessary. My suggestion here is that, is that the representation of the past as a time of chaos is itself an ideological effect of law. In contrast to the reality that people are quintessentially social creations, already dependent upon one another from the moment they're born, law persuasively furnishes a concept of the atomized asocial individual in need of social regulation. Such a view is most, likely, is most unlikely to have prevailed in Amazonia until recently. On the contrary, it's tempting to suggest that the potential danger that most concerned Amazonian people as a threat to social life was not atomization, uh, the absence of you know, unifying regular, regulating law, not atomization, but its opposite, excessive unification, arising from the failure to properly, to properly differentiate oneself from others. Hence the reluctance to impinge on others by reading their minds. To do so might risk an unwanted identification. For it is not existential isolation that, trouble, that troubles the Amazonian psyche, but total subsumption into the other, or existential non-differentiation. The principal thrust of shamanism and warfare is thus towards fragmentation and dispersal, creating enemies and boundaries, asserting differences, and against the processes of centralization and unification that give rise to a state of which law is the paramount expression. It's no surprise then that, like witchcraft, shamanism so often flourishes in times of colonial activity when centralizing forces are most in need of destabilizing. Law is constructing a new model of the person as a legal subject or citizen. True membership of this category requires the possession not of a human body, but of identity documents. In this model, the good Peruvian is the new benchmark of moral personhood based on virtues of peace, discipline, order, and organization. Law transforms singularities into subjects, multiplicities into a people. What passes largely unnoticed is how these new moral virtues are enabled by the forced monopoly of the community. When the Urarina Justice of the Peace was inaugurated in 2005, uh, he made a speech to the, to the nation, in fact, he went to, he went to Lima, because he was the first Urarina Justice of the Peace. Uh, he made a speech celebrating the pacifying function of law as a tool of progress akin to formal schooling. Yet my companions in the field at the time were deeply ambivalent, and most of them did not see his instatement as a positive move. In fact, they didn't want a justice of the peace at all in the region, um, let alone this particular guy. They felt that the justice he espoused would never be impartial. They sensed that whatever its benefits, law would too easily be used in the service of oppression. The instatement of a justice of the peace meant more concentration of power in the hands of an elite, and my friends saw themselves as all too likely to find themselves on the wrong side of the law. In many ways, the concept of an impartial justice implies a unitary standard of truth and morality that's inimical to Amazonian cosmopolitics, where the struggle of perspectives is endless and there can be no transcendence. This is what life is. Its converse, the end of struggle, is justice. <laughs>